Welcome to the Bellway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. This week, I covered in my first column what I learned from Kobe Bryant. Take the shot was essentially the lesson from that one. I was reflecting on his death this week. I covered him both in my column and in the newsletter where I gave out some thoughts about him and the topic of fatherlessness that's in this nation. I suggest in the newsletter this week that I think one of the reasons that his loss cut so deep is that his loss meant more. And one of the things that meant more about Kobe was the fact that he was a very outspoken father speaking on behalf of his daughters and advancing them in the world. And it was a very cool aspect to him. It's sort of something which you see with LeBron, LeBron too. And so when you're looking around at the world at the problem and pervasiveness of fatherlessness in this world, Kobe Bryant helped push against that and push against that trend. And so it hurts more to lose a person like that. And I cover that in the column in the newsletter. And then in my second column this week, I talked about how the GOP used a poison pill to end the demand for witnesses by Democrats and use that strategy to help bring an end to the entire impeachment process. We'll talk a little bit more about that this week, just because impeachment is finally wrapping up, so we need to cover it and once or twice we may hit it again next week just because there may be some more news, but I suspect there won't be much more on this front just because we're coming towards the end of impeachment here. The witness vote was their last major thing, and so this is probably going to be it for any more of the major news on this front. So if any of that interests you now or after the show, you can sign up and get it all in your email inbox at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. That's just the easiest way to get my columns and analysis to you. That list isn't for sale, so you don't have to worry about any more spam. It's just the easiest way to get my stuff. And finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes algorithm and I look forward to hearing from you in those reviews. All right, so we're going to jump into today's show. This week I'm covering, as I mentioned before, the wrap-up on impeachment, and specifically this week I'm going to cover why impeachment failed. There's a litany of problems, of course, that you can go through, but there are specific reasons why this impeachment failed to gain any traction at all. And second, I'm going to look into, I'm going to look forward, I should say, to the Democratic primaries. You have the caucuses in Iowa that are coming up this week, so I'm going to give my predictions on Iowa and sort of talk through the politics that are happening in the Democratic parties this week. So there's a lot of interesting things to cover on that front, so we'll cover both of those. So like I said, the first topic this week, as we jump right in, is I'm going to cover is how impeachment is finally ending after all this time, and also why it's ending now. It takes two people to tango, and it takes two parties in the American system to impeach. America has always been set up as a two-party system, and so if you're going to impeach somebody, you have to have both parties behind it. The Senate requires a two-thirds majority in order to remove a president. So you're, there's literally, unless your party has a two-thirds majority, you're going to require some bipartisanship to help push that goal across the line in order to impeach a president. Democrats set out to convince one party on impeachment themselves. And now they're aghast to learn that no one agrees with them. 
you have to have two parties to impeach. And Democrats only tried to convince their base that impeachment was a worthwhile venture. Now, Trump says that his call was perfect, and Schiff says that his case against Trump is ironclad. Now, neither of these things is true, but both sides are convinced that they are correct on this point, and that's why impeachment failed. Everybody only set out to preach to their own choir. Now, if you're defending yourself as Trump or Republicans on impeachment, that works. That's all you've got to do. You just have to keep the votes in your favor and work forward from there. But if you're going to be in the position of Democrats where you only have a majority control of the House and you're going to push for impeachment, the only way you're going to have a successful impeachment is to make sure it's a bipartisan venture where you can convince Republicans to vote on your side. Now, we haven't seen the final vote in the Senate because that's not going to happen until about Wednesday. But judging by what happened with the vote when it comes to witnesses, Democrats didn't gain anyone. In the House, they couldn't convince a single Republican to vote with them. Now, that, that's, that's, I keep coming back to this point on the House because it's not like every single House Republican is wearing a MAGA hat and going around preaching the greatness of Donald Trump. There are a number of people in the House who are, some of them are retiring, so there's nothing politically for them to lose, who looked at this and saw Donald Trump's conduct and said, this is wrong. This is wrong, and it needs to be answered. And they refused to do anything, and they refused to take any votes on it or to or to even move forward on impeachment because of how Democrats pushed impeachment forward. They, Democrats continually pushed these Republicans back. They never tried to win them, and that's where things fell apart for them. They couldn't convince a single House Republican to join their side because when these House Republicans, like Will Hurd of Texas, would say, this is what I would like to see, these are the witnesses I need to hear in order to come to, the, to a conclusion on this, Democrats continually rejected them. And that's why we're here. We're here because this was a partisan venture where both parties preached to their sides. And if you're defending the president on this one, you can do that because that's all you have to do to win. You just have to keep all the votes on your side. But if you're going to push forward on it, like Nancy Pelosi, Adam Schiff, and Jerry Nadler did, if you want a successful impeachment, you have to make it bipartisan. They didn't do that. They never took any steps to doing that. And that's why it failed. The vote on witnesses was the real end of the Senate trial. We're still waiting, like I said, for the eventual acquittal that's going to come from the Senate. But the vote on more witnesses was really where this thing came to an end. Because that was a chance for, if you thought that witnesses might bring you more information to help you along on that vote, this was the chance for Senate Republicans to make that argument. But the problem here is that the only thing the Democrats were offering were more of the witnesses that they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear from someone like John Bolton, who they refused to go for and get in the House. John Bolton said the same thing to the House and to the Senate, that whoever subpoenaed him could listen to him testify before their the committee or the entire body. And the House declined to subpoena him. They just requested that he come speak, and he wanted that subpoena. The House could have subpoenaed many other things, and they refused to do it. And they expected and requested that the Senate do this instead. They wanted the Senate to clean up all of this mess. 
and the, the, the Senate refused to do it. I, you shouldn't expect the Senate to do that. One of the key votes on this was Tennessee Republican Senator Lamar Alexander, and I, I thought he had probably the best summation of what happened in the Senate. I thought he described everything and every beat and every aspect that happened in the Senate impeachment trial and why he was voting against bringing in more witnesses. Because really, this was more of a Republican thing, wanting more witnesses, because in the House, only Democratic witnesses were brought in. One of the talking points that came out was that Democrats had had 17 of their own witnesses speak, whereas Republicans hadn't had any of their own witnesses speak. Now, they did have in the Senate Judiciary Committee, they had one law professor speak who sided with Republicans on this matter, Jonathan Turley, who had great testimony and talked about why he didn't believe that this specific action was impeachable and why the House's conduct was bad on the impeachment front. I wouldn't call him pro-Trump by any stretch of the imagination, but he had very solid reasoning on why this wasn't an impeachable act at this point. But back to Lamar Alexander, he gave a statement, like I said, where he describes Everything from Trump's conduct to the House's conduct to what was happening in the Senate. And I wanted to cover that because it wasn't too long, but it was good in that it describes everything that happened. And he starts out and he says, I worked with other senators to make sure we have the right to ask for more documents and witnesses. But there is no more need for more evidence to prove something that has already been proven and does not meet the United States Constitution's high bar for an impeachable offense. There is no need for more evidence to prove that the president asked Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. He said this on television on October 3, 2019, and during his July 25, 2019 telephone call with the president of Ukraine. There is no need for more evidence to conclude that the president withheld U.S. aid, at least in part, to pressure Ukraine to investigate the Bidens. The House managers have proven this with what they call a mountain of overwhelming evidence. There is no need to consider further the frivolous second article of impeachment that would remove the president for asserting his constitutional prerogative to protect confidential conversations with his close advisors. It was inappropriate for the president to ask a foreign leader to investigate his political opponent and to withhold U.S. aid to encourage that investigation. When elected officials inappropriately interfere with such investigations, it undermines the principle of equal justice under the law. But the Constitution does not give the Senate the power to remove the president from office and ban him from this year's ballot simply for actions that are inappropriate. The question, then, is not whether the president did it, but whether the United States Senate or the American people should decide about what to to do what to do about what he did. I believe that the Constitution provides that the people should make that decision in the presidential election that begins in Iowa on Monday. The Senate has spent nine long days considering this mountain of evidence. The arguments of the House managers and the President's lawyers, their answers to Senators' questions, and the House record. Even if the House charges were true, they do not meet the Constitution's treason bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanor standard for an impeachable offense. The framers believed there should never be a partisan impeachment. That is why the Constitution requires a two-thirds vote of the Senate for conviction. Yet not one House Republican voted for these articles. 
If this shallow, hurried, and wholly partisan impeachment were to succeed, it would rip the country apart, pouring gasoline on the fire of cultural divisions that already exist. It would create the weapon of perpetual impeachment to be used against future presidents whenever the House of Representatives is of a different political party. Our founding documents provide for duly elected presidents who serve with the consent of the governed, not at the pleasure of the United States Congress. Let the people decide. I thought that was a very powerful summation of what's happened in this entire impeachment process because it gets at the real issues of this case. It's not about whether Trump did this or not. I know Trump has said over and over again his call was perfect. It wasn't. What he did was wrong. The question is not on the wrongness of it. That's already been decided. Trump released the the uh, summation of the transcript of his call, the readout. That told us everything we needed to know on the impeachable front. What Democrats had to do from that moment on, after that readout came out, was to provide the argument of not just that this was inappropriate, but that it was so inappropriate it requires immediate removal by the U.S. Senate. And they never made that argument. They only argued over and over again that his conduct was bad, which if you're looking at this rationally, that's already that's the easy bar. That's the bar that's easiest to meet. You have to then go up and meet the higher bar, the political bar of removal. As I've said, impeachment is two unique things. The legal aspect is whether or not the conduct is actually impeachable. That's a very easy bar to cross. It's why Democrats only talk about that bar. The political bar is much higher. The political bar of telling the American people that a person who was duly elected by them must be removed from office is a much higher political bar. You have to have two-thirds majority of the Senate to do that. And Democrats were lucky on a good day to show 50 to 51 percent of the country agreeing with them that this was a valid removal. They never had the political support to do it, and they never went after the political support to do that. And so Lamar Alexander is right. If you impeach a president on that point and just on that lack of evidence with no defense for the president whatsoever, which is what the House did, you're pouring gasoline on the divisions in the country. And so that's why this witness vote was the real end for this trial, because this was the question of would any more evidence, would any more witnesses make any difference whatsoever? And the answer to that is no. Because this was the best argument that Democrats had without bringing any, in, any more witnesses in who could have defended the president. There is nothing in John Bolton's testimony and nothing that he can say that is any more powerful than the readout of that transcript where we see what Donald Trump says and what he does. Not even emails could change that because we can see what he's doing in this phone call with the Ukrainian president. So if you cannot make the concrete the absolute concrete argument that a removal has to happen because of that phone call, then you don't have a political impeachment, a valid political impeachment. Democrats have had months to make this call now, and they can't do it. And in the, the facts of this is that the politics of impeachment have always been bad. There's a reason why, from day one, Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi was always against 
impeachment. She knew it was a bad idea when she took hold of the Congress, and it remained a bad idea even as she went through the ordeal of impeaching him. She knew at the beginning what she needed, because this was bad politically, is that she had to speed through it. That was the conventional wisdom, that the only way to successfully do this was to speed through the impeachment process. This thing happened in October, and so they wanted to have an impeachment done by before Christmas. And that's what they got done, even though that meant there was no time to subpoena anything, there was no time to fight anything in courts. It was only about getting the impeachment vote over with. And so because that speed was more important, it meant shoving it through via votes was also more important. Now, they did get through 17 witnesses in that matter of time, but that's all they got through. They refused to go through any of the defenses that House Republicans threw up, which meant if you're not willing to listen to a single defense that Republicans are making, whether valid or not, you're not going to get anyone from that side to jump over. So then this became a wholly partisan process. Every witness was Democratic chosen. All the questions that were asked and the direction of the witnesses were Democratic driven. No Republican witnesses and no evidence was brought forward by them. So all knowers now fighting or negotiating with the administration on anything. They didn't fight for any subpoenas. There was no negotiation, like I said. And the negotiation part is important because usually when Congress is fighting with the executive branch and they make a request and the executive comes up and says, well, we're asserting executive privilege, usually what happens is that for months and sometimes years, there's negotiation between the two. And the White House eventually gives up what they have to give up because they don't want to lose executive privilege rulings in court. And it's worth going back about this point. And the one Republican witness who pointed all this out at the time in the House was Jonathan Turley, the law professor, who told Democrats that they had a thin case, that they needed to do more, and they had a very thin record in which to impeach a president on at this point. So Democrats chose to take this path of thin evidence. They chose to not go after John Bolton. They chose not to go after Mick Mulvaney and all these others who they said was critically important in the Senate. The House said, no, we don't need it. We have an ironclad case. Impeachment is moving forward. So they decided this path. They decided that they had to push it through and it if you want a comparison here, the comparison that you have to use is that this for them, for Democrats, was like pushing through Obamacare. When they decided, well, we have the margins, there's no need to bring Republicans in, so we're just going to ram this thing through. And that only made Republican opposition ever more greater because there was absolutely no bipartisan support for any part of that bill And once they shoved it through that way. If you want to build these things to last the long term, you've got to make them bipartisan by some way or another. That's why Donald Trump's, his new uh, trade deal with Mexico and Canada will have far longer ramifications than whatever Obama did through health care just because everybody is bent on changing what Obamacare is. Republicans openly oppose it. And if you look at the Democratic primaries, only one candidate, Joe Biden, is running on keeping Obamacare intact and building on it. Everybody else wants to chuck it out the window for Medicare for all or some other change in Medicare for some, as Pete Buttigieg likes to say. 
everyone, because there was no bipartisan support for Obamacare, there's only the legacy of Obama attached to this. And so if you're not bent on protecting that, you have no reason to protect his key legislative accomplishment from that period of time. So this is impeachment. It is another Obamacare that is hanging around the necks of Democrats. But they're the ones who chose not to pursue the documented evidence that could have made this bipartisan. If they could have gotten any Republican votes, it would have made it harder for the Senate to start rejecting things like this. You still could have probably done it in the end if you're Mitch McConnell, but it would have been politically harder to do. So Democrats chose this path. And the interesting thing here is that I think, I think if they challenge executive privilege in the courts— they probably win. Executive privilege is not something that is ironclad. It's something that's been challenged very few times in the court system. And so if you're willing to push forward on that and fight for it, you can probably get some of these things from the White House that would make your argument more persuasive and allow these Republicans who need more evidence to come to their conclusion. They need to see some of these things that their base thinks will help, and they need to see this out in the open. But because Democrats made it easy, and made it easy for these Republicans to go against it, there's no need for any of it. So Trump claimed executive privilege. Democrats then just threw up their hands and gave up. And now they blame the Senate for not getting that same information. Well, that makes no sense at all. Trump's claimed a lot of things. Just because he claims executive privilege doesn't mean you then get to turn around and claim obstruction of justice. If you want that information, subpoena it and fight for it. They weren't willing to do it, and that makes this entire project of theirs and this entire argument that they've made that this is somehow a cover-up a joke. Any Democrat that claims that Republicans denying witnesses is committing a cover-up should then look at House Grid Democrats and say, well, then why are they part of the cover-up? You can't claim that one party is doing a cover-up while the initial party that did all the charges did the exact same thing in the House. There is no cover-up here. It's just political malfeasance on the part of Democrats. This entire process was a joke. The entire thing. Impeachment failed because Democrats focused on their own base. They didn't focus on substance, and they didn't focus on winning the concept of impeachment in the public's mind. This is the worst impeachment on record. None of the accolades that the media is giving out for this, saying that it's historical and that everyone should pay attention to it, none of that's true. This is all hyperbole. Yes, Trump did what he did, but Democrats gave up in trying to get the evidence that would be needed to make this a bipartisan process, because you absolutely could at, could at least at one point have won these Republicans over, some of them. You could have won over if you had just tried to win them over. At no point in time was there any attempt made by Democrats. And they tried to just rely solely on moral platitudes and empty rhetoric. That's not going to do it. If you want to win somebody over, you have to at least win, meet them halfway. There was no attempt. Democrats hurled insults, and if you didn't go with them on that, you were shut out of the process in the House. Well, that's not a winning process if you want to go to the Senate and get a removal of the president. 
So now this entire Joker process is finally ending. In my upcoming column tomorrow, talking about how this is wrapping up now, I call it the zombie, a walking zombie lurching towards its doom with body parts falling off. And I think that's pretty apt here. The witness vote signaled that this thing is dead, so now it's just a matter of where we actually throw it in the grave. And good riddance to it. This is not a historical impeachment at all, and historians are not going to look kindly on anyone involved with this process because it's very clear that Donald Trump had bad actions here, and it's also very clear that Democrats had no intention of going through with a serious impeachment process. So this does not deserve any historical kindness, just as the Clinton impeachment is more than likely not going to be looked kindly once you move 100 years away and looking at with the hindsight of history. Neither of these impeachments is going to be important. Everybody's going to continually look back and look at the original Johnson impeachment and look at Nixon's resignations as the two true moments where there was actual evidence to remove a president. These two incidents don't matter at all in a historical perspective. And good riddance to it, I say. So that's all I've got on the impeachment process. Hopefully this will be the last time I have to talk or write about that. Again, there may be some developments this week that warrant some discussion, but I doubt it. So when we get back from the break, we'll talk about the Democratic primaries. Next up is the Democratic primaries in Iowa this week. So the primary is being held this week, and the opposition hits are coming in red hot against Bernie Sanders right now. You're just saying opposition dump after opposition dunk where people are leaking things to journalists and they're saying, oh, this newly unearthed video of Bernie Sanders saying something. Whatever he's saying and whatever they're saying he said this week, if it's coming out this week or the week prior, it's all about campaigns dumping their stuff to journalists who then run it and pretend that it's some kind of a legitimate news source. And if you're a Democrat, you can do this. Because journalists will very happily run whatever hit you give them because it makes their jobs easier. So the real story for me aren't these opposition hits that you're seeing from Bernie Sanders. These were all researched by various campaigns, and they're now being fed to journalists. I would expect that these hits are coming from either Biden or Warren at this point because their campaigns are the best set up to do this, and they also are the two who would benefit most from Bernie Sanders fading down the stretch. So I think you can say two things about these opposition hits that are coming in this week before the Iowa caucuses. And the first is, is that establishment Democrats are terrified of Bernie Sanders winning. Now, I think you could determine this by what happened a couple weeks ago when CNN was running outright hits on Bernie Sanders and just covering him as you would expect the Elizabeth Warren campaign to do, where they were just openly and just saying whatever the Warren campaign would say on that point. So this is the establishment who is afraid of Sanders winning, and they're going all out right now trying to prevent him from winning and sweeping through the Democratic Party. Now, the other thing to take from this is not just from the establishment's terrifying stature here, but it's also that the other campaigns think that Bernie Sanders has the current lead in Iowa. Now, if you look at public polling on this, there's a lot of mixed signals here. There's everybody has, there's about at least four to five candidates who've all had good polls in the last two or three weeks. And some of them have shown Sanders leading and others have shown Biden leading. I'm recording this 
on a Saturday night. I've got to go back to Memphis, as I mentioned in the newsletter. I've got to go back there on Sunday, so I'm not going to record at my normal time. And there's going to be several polls that are going to drop in the next 12 to 24 hours that are going to shape how people view this race. But right now, when you're looking at it, it looks as if it's a very tight race between Biden and Bernie. But if you're looking at how these opposition hits are falling, it looks more like the other campaigns believe that Bernie Sanders is in the lead. So that might be tipping us off to say that internal polling from these campaigns suggests that Bernie has a stronger lead than what is being shown in the public polls. No, I don't know. It could be one way, it could be another. This is just trying to parse what these campaigns are doing and figure out what's happening on the ground. The surprise candidate here could be Amy Klobuchar, who has had very little traction so far in the campaign, but in the last three or four weeks has seen her stock rise in places like Iowa and move into, in some cases, a second through fourth place in the race. Some polls have shown her pretty high, but she's nowhere near a lead. So that shows her maybe taking over a position of an Elizabeth Warren or a Pete Buttigieg, who's got this strong second claim to the establishment lane behind Joe Biden. So if she can show a surprise strength here, it could help her moving on into places like New Hampshire and South Carolina because it provides an alternative to Joe Biden. And if you're looking for an alternative that's not Bernie Sanders, it could be helpful to have her along. So, But nationally, if you're looking at this, the real interesting play here, at least if you're an establishment Democrat and you're looking at this, the interesting thing is Mike Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York. He's poured in hundreds of millions of dollars, more than any other person, and dumping just millions upon millions of dollars trying to get his name recognition up. You've probably seen his ads. If you've been anywhere near a TV or on your computer and watched any form of video ad at some point, you've probably seen a Mike Bloomberg ad. I know I've seen them, and I'm in Tennessee, and I know there's no chance he would ever win this state. But he's spreading it out and going spread offense and throwing these ads absolutely everywhere. Now, the interesting thing about this is that he is in, he's not on any of the ballots for the first four primary states. So Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. Mike Bloomberg is not on any of them. The next debate is being held in Iowa, I mean not in Iowa, in Nevada, before the Nevada primaries. Guess who's not on the Nevada primaries? Mike Bloomberg. And Democrats have changed the rules for these debates, taking out the requirement that these candidates have a certain level of donations and are now going only on polls. And this is a directly this is in direct response to Michael Bloomberg, who has no donations really coming in. It's he's self-funding his entire campaign. And as he's moving up in the polls, if he's got strong enough polls, it might allow him to jump in some of these debates. And so he's nearing, in some places he's over double digits, and he's nearing them in other polls, where he's getting strong enough nationally to where he could appear on the stage and debate on the stage in Nevada without being on that primary ballot. And he's putting all his eggs in the basket of winning on Super Tuesday, which is when all these states go live. And so he's just pouring money into all the states for Super Tuesday, even though there will be about four primaries that will be shaping the news narratives going into that race. So 
the interesting thing to me is like Bloomberg, because he's spending all this money, he's showing that it's getting him some, he's climbing up in some of these polls, but he's still on, on these burly ballots. So it's impossible for him to get delegates and shape a news narrative that he's a winner. And the other interesting thing about Bloomberg is that he takes up the center lane. He's part of this establishment and group of people who like Joe Biden, like Amy Klobuchar, but still want a more Mike Bloomberg-type person in the race. Now, personally, I don't know anybody who would vote for Michael Bloomberg, but they are typically more of the New York, D.C. types who like him quite a bit. But if you're trying to stop Bernie Sanders... Michael Bloomberg in the race is the worst thing that's ever happened to Joe Biden because he's eating into that center lane. He's not eating into the people who are going to vote for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. He's eating into this moderate center of the party that likes this strong-arm form of government that Bloomberg supports. So you're looking at a potential here where if Bloomberg can come in and weaken somebody like Joe Biden in these Super Tuesday states, he could potentially pave a way for Bernie Sanders to come in and win with a much smaller version of his coalition. Because if Bernie Sanders has can push his, his vote totals up to somewhere around 30% and eke out 35% wins in some of these states where everybody else remains fractured between all these other candidates, it's going to mean he's going to pile up more delegates in the end than Joe Biden, which is going to make a convention fight much more viable. And Bloomberg, in my mind, I don't think he has a chance to win the nomination, but he could be a spoiler here for Joe Biden and allow and open up a path for Bernie Sanders. Because what Bernie is facing is the same reality of what he faced last time. The way he lost last time was that he won these early victories against Hillary Clinton. Clinton eked out a very small victory in Iowa and then went from there and got her tail kicked in New Hampshire. And then Bernie performed well again in Nevada. And then the primaries shifted south. And that's where Bernie Sanders absolutely lost the nomination process because once you started throwing in you know, places like South Carolina where there's a stronger black population who backed Hillary Clinton and not Bernie Sanders, things change rapidly for him because black voters and Southern Democrats are far less progressive and socialist than the people who are voting for Bernie Sanders in some of these early states. So the ground changes under Bernie very fast. And so he has to score some of these victories to avoid a wipeout in these Southern states. But if you can score some early victories and then blunt the victories of of Joe Biden by having a Michael Bloomberg come in and chew through some vote totals and make Biden look weaker than he actually is, you could open up a path for Bernie where he doesn't have to win as many votes in these states and he's able to get delegates and maybe the occasional win. So Bloomberg is, I think, he's in this to say, he says he's in this to to beat Donald Trump. He's worried about Trump winning. The, the problem is he could be sinking the Democratic Party by serving them up Bernie Sanders. And I am i don't think Bernie is the weakest candidate in the Democratic primaries. I think that that goes to Elizabeth Warren right now. She would be one of the weakest candidates besides somebody like Pete Buttigieg, who is just an unknown nationally. Bernie it doesn't have that same baggage as Warren does. But he is an outright socialist, and he's unapologetic on that front. So it would be this true dichotomy with somebody like Trump, 
who is untruthful on multiple fronts and is willing to lie, but he's nowhere near as extreme as Bernie. And then you have Bernie, who is wholly truthful about what he wants to do, but it would involve burning down the entirety of the American system for his brand of class-based socialism. I have several friends who are on the left who are posting on places like Facebook and even Twitter who are losing their minds over Bernie Sanders because they believe that Bernie would be the equivalent of running a Walter Mondale versus Richard Nixon. So in this case, Donald Trump would be Nixon, and Bernie Sanders would be Walter Mondale, who gets wiped out against Nixon in the second election for Nixon. And I don't know if this is a correct comparison. I think the more correct one there, again, is Elizabeth Warren, where she would be the Mondale-type figure who would get wiped out by Trump. But it is possible for this also to be Bernie Sanders. And so they don't want Bernie to win because they think he's too extreme to be able to win in a general election. And that's certainly possible. If he can't get a strong coalition of voters in the Democratic Party, it's going to be hard for him to build a coalition beyond them in the general election when all you can hope for is that people vote for you because you have a D next to your name and you're not Donald Trump. Now, that's a path to victory. In some cases, it worked for Donald Trump last time. He wasn't Hillary Clinton, and he was a Republican. And so people are willing to look past a lot of his faults and say, well, I don't want to vote for Clinton. I'm going to go for Trump, and we'll just roll the dice and see what happens. That could be the same thing that happens for Bernie. So you can't discount it totally. But it's not a foregone conclusion that Trump loses in that situation either. It could go either way. Trump versus Bernie is the ultimate outsider crazy test for America. It's where you're testing whether or not you're going to go for this crazy socialist or just the crazy reality TV guy. And the other thing to think about here in the general election, if Bernie somehow makes it through the primary season for Democrats and takes the nomination, the other thing to wonder about here is, is Michael Bloomberg going to run third party? And if he does, who does he hurt more? He could potentially hurt Bernie Sanders in this if he's running because he's going to take those same Democratic voters who just want somebody else to vote for and they don't want to vote for Bernie, but they want to vote for a Democrat down ticket. And so they'll throw Bloomberg on the top of the ticket. So it could be, I don't really foresee Bloomberg taking voters from Donald Trump. He could in some of these other, other um, you know, suburban areas and places like that. But I don't foresee that being the case. It seems like Bloomberg, if he runs third party, since he's dumping all his money in the race, it seems like he would hurt a Bernie Sanders more. So it's something worth watching because it, it just doesn't seem like it would be a very Bloomberg thing to do to jump in this late into the primaries just to lose and then do nothing else afterwards. I think he's there's a strong potential if he doesn't get the nomination, he will then turn around and try to run as a third-party candidate in the general election on the theory that he is the savior for Democrats who can still save them once again here. In reality, I think he probably hurts Democrats. So my prediction, as I said... Coming up for Iowa, I think even with all the noise with Bernie Sanders, I think you're going to see a very small win by Joe Biden here. I think you're going to see a repeat of 2016 in Iowa where Bernie's showing a lot of strength late, but ultimately Joe Biden will pull this out, but his victory will be under 1%, and then Bernie Sanders will turn around and win a blowout in New Hampshire, and it, then it'll be Biden versus Bernie going to North to South Carolina, trying to figure out 
who has the stronger claim to the Democratic nomination. So I think it's you've got Biden in first place, and you've got Sanders in a very close second, 1% or, or less. Um, I, I actually think it could be under uh, half a percent that separates them. And then I'm also expecting, the closer we get to this, probably about 48 hours out of this, I'm expecting another really massive negative attack on Bernie Sanders to come out to try to affect the vote that happens going in here. So if you remember in 2016 on the Republican side, there Ted Cruz ran an attack where he suggested to Ben Carson voters that Ben Carson had dropped out. And Carson and Trump both accused Trump of doing this in order to win the Iowa caucuses. And that may have played a role. It may not have played a role. But it enraged Trump, and he was already willing to call it rigged at that point until he started rolling through wins over Cruz at that point. And I think there's a chance you could see something like that happen on the Democratic side this time around in an attempt to hamstring Bernie Sanders. So the question is, if that happens... How does he approach it? Does he go, oh, this is rigged again, like Donald Trump, or does he just slough it off? I don't really know. I think it's a pretty much a lock that he's going to win New Hampshire. So the real question is what happens in Iowa and this tight race. My prediction is Biden, Bernie, one and two. And then after that, I think the next big thing that's going to happen out of this is I think you're going to see Elizabeth Warren fade. She's not going to be a third place. She may not even come in in fourth place. If you see Amy Klobuchar jump up into a third place position here, I think Pete Buttigieg is going to have fourth place locked down, which is going to leave Elizabeth Warren sitting in fifth place wondering what might have been. Because if she can't win here and Bernie's going to lock down New Hampshire, there's no way Elizabeth Warren is coming back in any of these states. So the question, we could be looking at a situation here where she is facing the prospect of dropping out earlier than expected. So that's something to watch. Her and Klobuchar's places could be flipped, but I think Warren will end up being the surprise here where she has fallen to, at most, I mean, her the highest place she may place is third place, but I think it, she could be a fifth place person depending on what shakes out here. So you've got that as my predictions. The other thing I think to watch here, if you're looking at this entire field, the entire field is old. Bernie Sanders has already had a heart attack. And in 2016, Clinton had a health scare where she sort of passed out and fainted after a memorial service for 9-11, I believe it was. And all of these people in this election... Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Michael Bloomberg, Elizabeth Warren, Donald Trump, they're all in their 70s, and some of them in their late 70s. Bernie's knocking on 80. So their health will was an issue last time, and they're all older this time. So I think you're going to see health issues come up. It's just there's a non-zero percent chance that one of them has a major, a major health scare. Bernie Sanders has already had one, and I'm shocked, shocked it hasn't been a bigger issue in this campaign than it has been. But as we're getting up here into primaries, those things are going to get magnified even more. So watch for that to become a potential issue as we really hit the home stretch here where we're going to start holding these primaries and each week becomes more crucial for these candidates as they're heading down the stretch because they've got to start hitting it on all cylinders. There's no more times for mistakes. 
they can't have any more flubs. In 2016, you had Marco Rubio, who had his meltdown in the New Hampshire debate, which sunk his chances. He was looking at maybe coming in strong in some places like New Hampshire or in South Carolina, and it just didn't happen after his debate performance. So there's a lot riding on some of these new next debate performances, and there's a lot riding on what happens in Iowa this week. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes, or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure you sign up for that, and you'll get it the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again. But until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.